Welcome back everyone to How AI Built This. This episode and indeed all of them are brought to you by the folks at Cathcart Associates, um, technology recruitment experts headquartered in Edinburgh. Whether you're looking for work or looking to hire, uh, we can definitely help you. Um, so please get in touch. Today on the podcast, uh, I'm very excited to have Andy McMahon, analytics team lead at Greco in Glasgow and actually the Data Scientist of the Year for 2019, um, which is pretty cool. And he's a great guy. He's spoken at our Scott Mill event before. He runs his own um, technical data science event um, and has a really interesting background um, and is just a good guy, really. Um, so, yeah, please welcome Andrew Mann to How AI Built This. Firstly, welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's probably the sunniest week in Scottish history. I know, it's lovely. And we're spending an hour talking indoors, but it's still work time, <laughs> so it's fine. Um, I did try and take my laptop outside the other day to do some work, but um, the screen isn't, it's not yeah. made for it. Although a good friend sent a picture of his uh, girlfriend with a cardboard box around her laptop so she could sit outside, which is pretty uh, pretty ingenious. No, I was about to say I saw something like that on, I don't know if it was LinkedIn or Twitter, I was like, that's brilliant, but I need, to, I need to now buy something from Amazon that big. <laughs> oh, that's so not a problem. I've been getting weekly Amazon That's not a problem. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, all right, so in terms of what we always start on, um, I just realized I said in terms of there, I keep saying that on podcasts, it's really starting to annoy me. But yeah, we always start on education. So you did, uh, you've done a fair bit of academia. Um, <laughs> yeah. Starting off with uh, theoretical physics uh, in Glasgow. Obviously, you're from Glasgow. So did you did you always know you were going to go into that? Was that something you enjoyed kind of high school and I thought it just made sense to go into physics? Yeah, I mean it's it's a good question. So casting my mind back, I think I think I always liked science in general. Like I was a massive Star Trek fan growing up and stuff, and kind of was a proper geek that way. Um, but I was kind of I was interested in loads of stuff. I think I liked I liked music. wasn't very good at it, but liked it. Liked English. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was into Spanish. So I think at one point. I thought I was going to do almost every degree you can think of. At one point, I was going to do literature. At one point, I was going to be a lawyer. Never considered being a doctor, but kind of people said, oh, you're pretty smart, you should be a doctor and stuff. I was like, yeah, but I don't like blood or guts or gore or biology, so it's not going to work. Um, and then when I did my hires, I kind of started feeling that maths and physics was, yeah, where I was kind of most comfortable, and I, I really got this. And then I actually, I actually got a place at university through clearing, so if anybody's oh, listening yeah. sort of knows knows somebody that age, I would definitely recommend it. So I got my got my higher results back. My dad my dad was like, their results are pretty good, didn't they? And I was like, yep. Yeah. Uh, he was like, why are you going to wait another year before you go? And I was like, oh, people usually do advanced hires or whatever. And he was like, just go. <laughs> so I remember we just rocked up to Glasgow Uni. I phoned them. I was like, have you got a place for maths and physics? It was initially. Rocked up, kind of, yeah, got, got the got the place through clearing and I was like wow 16 going to uni here we go <laughs> but yeah I kind of I, I thought at that point I would do maths and physics that then turned into theoretical physics um, and all the way through undergrad I was thinking I wanted to be an academic um, and I actually never shook that until my PhD quite a few years later so I kind of did everything through my undergrad career with an ac- academic career in mind so that's why I did that's like internships and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of always thought of myself as a scientist from that point onwards once I started uni. Um, and then during my PhD, I had obviously a change of heart, wanted to go into industry, became a data yeah, scientist. Yeah, so I was going to say, so we, we looked into, you, went, you ended up in London, actually. So yeah. um, well, I love your story there about having 
good grades and being a doctor. It's such a Scottish mentality, isn't it? Like, if you good grades, people say, yeah. you should be a doctor. No, and, and I remember my maths teacher telling me at uh, parents' night, like, <laughs> this was during my hires, and he was like, I was like, no, I think I'll study maths and physics. And I thought that would really impress him because he's a maths teacher. He said, no, don't be stupid. Be a doctor. <laughs> I was like, what? So oh, it's just hilarious. We had, uh, most of the people in school. Yeah, well, most of the people was either doctor or um, or lawyer because it was five A's and yeah. you, you sound smart if you go and do law. And I, th- I think I'm right in saying none of the people I know that went to do law have ended up doing law. Um, yeah, well, they did the like degree and stuff, yeah. but they just thought, like, yeah. stuff this. No, and um, I think I do remember looking at the the synopsis for some of the law courses, and I was like, I was used to reading some dry stuff at that point, and I was just like, this is too far. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you were reading the stuff about describing the modules on tax and family law and stuff, I was like, this is too dry even for me, and that's saying something. You know what I mean? So, no, I, I kind of, I think I made the right choice actually. Looking back, although I've ended up doing something quite different. I do think it set me up quite well. So no, I was pretty I happy. Will, um, I don't think I've got it in my notes, but we'll definitely get to the link between the two because I've had loads of conversations with people about it. My sales director's got a bachelor's in physics from St. Andrews and he explained it to me right at the start that data scientists will be good, uh, physicists will be good data scientists because just part of the job of being a physicist or, or looking at physics in any way is just dealing with huge amounts of data and making it make sense to someone, which is a very simplistic way of describing a data scientist job. But you, yeah, you ended up doing it down in London for your masters and your PhD, like you just said. So, um, yeah. any particular reason I'm going to Imperial College was that, like, I don't know much about the physics kind of colleges and unis that you would go to, and um, but was that one of the ones that just kind of stood out? Yeah, it was kind of at that point. So, getting to the the end of my degree, as I said, wanted to be an academic, so you have to kind of go do a PhD, and. Again, my grades were quite good and I'd done a sort of research internship. So I'd been to Germany and did like a particle physics thing and did stuff in the uni as well. Really enjoyed that. And then I realized if I wanted to go into research, you should try and get as good a uni as possible for your PhD. So I kind of looked um, to like Imperial Oxford Cambridge type ones. And then I, I saw this program at Imperial and it was all about basically... You were doing materials physics, so it was called theory and simulation of materials. So you were really understanding how materials that we use work, so everything from plastics to photovoltaics to all sorts of other stuff. Um, And I just liked the description of the program that they said it was all about doing research, but in a way that would be applicable to the real world. Because one of the things I even recognized I didn't like too much about research then was you could do stuff in a silo and never really generate value from it and kind of feel that okay, I've written 100 papers, but only 10 people who are like your best mates have read them. Uh, that's, that's not really impact, is it? Um, whereas this program, they were talking a lot about partnerships with industry and how the research they were doing sometimes was being spun out into companies um, and sort of saying that basically through the program, you would act as a bridge between different disciplines. So like for mine, it was physics and chemistry, really. Uh, for others, it was engineering and physics, etc. So by being that that bridge uh, and working with industry, we're just more likely to to get something in the end that would that would be useful in the real world. And that was kind of true of materials physics in general, actually. That kind of whole area, and I really liked that. Um, yeah, so kind of that was some of my mindset at the time. Saw that program, really liked it, applied to it, uh, got in, and as part of that, you do a masters 
the first year. Uh, and through that, they were teaching you lots of stuff from outside your traditional disciplines. So I was a physicist by background, but I was learning lots of engineering and more chemistry than I'd known before. Uh, same for the chemists who were coming in. They were learning all the engineering and physics and sort of vice versa. So it was a really challenging program. One of the academics on it, I remember he said, uh, I think we'd finished all the exams. We were having a drink or something. And he says, we've basically designed this to be the SAS for academics or something. He says, that's why you're all stressed out your box and losing your hair and stuff. He was like, we've tried to, we've tried to make it like an SAS training course. Well, like, oh, thanks. Thanks for that. You couldn't have made it easy. So, yeah. So, did that Imperial, got the master's, carried on to the PhD. So, I was there for a couple of years, then came back home. Did you enjoy that in London, kind of more generally speaking? Hmm. Tough question. I think I liked it initially. I like the kind of buzz of the place and feeling like it's one of those cities where you're like, oh, you feel like you're at the center of things. But very quickly, it was just so busy and the pace of life was so intense. Yeah, just just the way of life didn't really, really suit me. I was with my wife at the time as well. And we just sort of we ended up like missing home in terms of I think it's a very Scottish thing as well, where you just you have your group of pals and your family and it's all quite close knit. Even though it's maybe not it's maybe not your close knit community like it used to be with your your village or your street or whatever, but you often have that network there. We just didn't have that yeah. in London. It was like you had your friends through through uni, but that wasn't the same. And we wanted we wanted to like buy a house and settle down and have a family, and we just couldn't imagine right. doing that in London. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, whenever um, whenever you looked at the numbers for the price of a house, it was kind of like right that'll take me about hundred years on an academic salary. Uh, so now nah, I'll just come home. I remember my uh, my sister moved into London, maybe a wee bit actually even before you were there, and uh, she worked for a very well known fashion uh, online fashion company. But it was her first job out of um, uh, fashion college, and I can't remember it exactly, but she probably got paid somewhere in the kind of low or mid teens, and she was li- she was living in London. And like my mum and dad were basically just paying her rent. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, no, she, and she was skin. Yeah, and it. it and I kind of I realized, I think, after living there a while, that there's this kind of thing that's told this mythology built up, like you need to go to London to get a good job, you need to go to London to do certain things, and that's the, that's where the center of lots of stuff in the UK is. But as you grow up a bit, you realize that's not true. There's so many regional hubs that are excellent. Um, and I've noticed that with the data science community in general. We can maybe come on to that. I think sort of the central belt of Scotland's a brilliant place to do what we do. Uh yeah. And and it's a place where, like you say, if you if you get X salary, you can you can actually live on it. <laughs> You're going to be subsidised <laughs> by mum and dad. You know what I mean. So I think the quality of life is better up here, and we really enjoyed coming back and reconnecting with friends and family and that network again. Um, no, I bet being able to buy a house. Yeah. <laughs> I I think I think the London thing is all bollocks now, and I think this Corona we'll get we'll actually get onto this a bit more. But the coronavirus uh, outbreak and, and kind of forced to work from home, I think that will have a huge impact on like places like London. And I'm sure that everyone who wants to live there will still live there. Um, yeah. But I'm sure there's a bunch of people who would rather go two hours outside London and live in the countryside and do the same job they're already doing. Um, and it's now just been proven on a mass scale that it's, it's possible. Um, no, exactly. And I think. I think you'll see things like, and this is why the things I'm excited about, it'll become, your workforce should become much more international even when it couldn't have been before. So even like yeah. startup companies, sometimes 
they would be like maybe prohibited from hiring foreign hires because of all the fees and stuff you need to pay. If you can work yeah. remotely, why well, it doesn't matter anymore. And that automatically just opens up the talent pool. Like, yeah. And I'm really excited by that. I'm kind of hoping that we leverage that moving forward because there's going to be excellent people across the globe that we've just never had the potential to incorporate into a team or meet. And I know time yeah. zones can be difficult, but we're kind of we, there's ways around that. I think there's there's definitely yeah. ways around that. Yeah. I was just speaking to someone just now. We've got a client we work with that will hire anyone anywhere. So they've got a base in the States. That's where you would call kind of their HQ. But they've got folk from like London, Manchester, Edinburgh, Brazil, um, Malaysia. But they've oh, yeah. done that from the start. So luckily for them, they made that conscious decision. So they were set up for it as opposed to a company now where they're like, shit, yeah. everyone, everyone's not working at home. <laughs> yeah, but, what um, the only thing that I think they've ever had to worry about is time zone. And I think the best way to do it is just have a kind of rough this suits the most people so we'll make it work as best we can yeah. and then otherwise have a bit of flexibility. Anyway, we'll, we'll get back on the COVID in a minute but you did the PhD before we go, I was going to say you fancy a career in academia but you said that already but th- did you actually enjoy the process of doing the PhD but just through that process you decided that it wasn't for you to stay in, in academia? Yeah, I think, I think that's the right way to put it. Um, so I definitely enjoyed the research aspect. I learned loads. But one of the things that was really good about that program I was on was, as I mentioned, that strong industry tie. But they also had a bit of a a bit of a push to tell you, look, if you become an academic, it's extraordinarily hard. It's like this kind of Hunger Games tournament <laughs> where you need to like <laughs> constantly, you know, like, defeat the next level and try and get to the top. And only if you're lucky will you end up with a permanent job. Yeah, and the more and more that sunk in, I was like, I don't think that's the life I want. Like, uh, and with my wife as well, and like I said, we wanted to start a family and things, so it's not feasible that you can do that and move around every two years. Or at least I didn't think it was. It is feasible, but it's not. It's not what kind of fit with my goals, if you like. I like that stability and having sort of, you know, your standard. I've got the same pals I grew up with, grow like growing up. They're all my same mates yeah. that I go out and have a beer with. I like having that. I just didn't, didn't see that happening if every two years we had to move across the world on a temporary contract and then not be sure where the next job's going to be and if I'll even get a next contract and does that even lead to a permanent job at the end? And it just sounded too ultra competitive for me. And I can be competitive, but I wasn't, I wasn't willing to bet all of that stuff on, on sort of that, if you like. Um, so I think yeah. it was through that and kind of conversations I had with academics made me realize that and then as i was saying the push to sort of industry and in that program saying think about other things meant you would have other experiences so i did i did lots of cool stuff during my program like i would write i wrote articles for the the student magazines at the college trying to get some other experience doing that and then i was a part-time consultant for the discovery channel for a bit to try something else and you know what i mean <laughs> what did you do for them? Uh, so there was two there was two shows on the Discovery Channel called, one was called You Have Been Warned and one was called Outrageous Acts of Science. And basically what they did was they took people doing crazy stuff on YouTube and then explained the science behind it. So <laughs> as a consultant, what I had to do was um, I would get sent this YouTube video. I would get sent quite a few a week. It was it was kind of good money and it was, sort of, it was really fun to do. So they would send you the YouTube links and they would go, right, explain that. So it would be stuff like... I remember one was this guy in Russia 
Um, oh, it's, it's a good start already. I'm ready for start, this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then you'll, you'll no guess where this is going. So he's on top of a crane, uh, a fully extended crane. So you're talking about, I don't know, 100 feet or something. And he, he just jumps and he's got, he's got a parachute and uh, <laughs> it doesn't pull. And then he lands in the snow. But then you see two seconds later, he gets up and walks away. So they basically <laughs> said, they said, can you explain? So it's things like that, right? So first of all, you're watching this and going, that is mental. But then they're like, can you explain sort of the minimum thickness of that snow uh, to make sure that he would be able to walk away without injury? So you'd have to like do stuff like that or they'd show his, they showed his one that was um, sort of uh, dust devils, which are these many, many twisters that appear in the desert sometimes. And they're like, can you explain that? There's, there was a really cool... YouTube video of it, and then one beside that that was um, it was called a, a dust devil with fire tornado or something. But basically, somehow fi- something had caught fire and gone into the tornado, and they're just asking you to explain all these Jesus. weird things. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's and, an amazing job. No, it was it was great. It was great fun. So I would write up the notes. I would try and write a one page explanation that anybody could understand roughly. They would then run that past the on-screen scientists, who would then sort of tweak it a tiny bit, uh, and then they would basically they would show the video, and then the scientists would sort of be on explaining that. But it was it was great <laughs> fun. But I saw, but it was there was some mental stuff on YouTube. Like one other great one that I've just remembered actually was this guy in Ukraine. This time I remember it was Ukraine, and he took the he took the magnet out of a microwave. Which really do not ever do this. Anybody listening, right? <laughs> not that you would. But he took apart his microwave and yet he rewired it all so that he could put on a pole and pass an electrical current through and it would activate the, the magnet and activate the, the microwaves. So he's walking about with this like microwave spear thing and he's pointing <laughs> at ele- he's pointing at electrical gadgets so they blow up. And they were like so he's like pointing it to his radio, it's playing a some tune and then he points it to and it just like catches fire and explodes and they're like can you explain this and I was like from a scientific point of view yes but from a kind of psychological point of view I don't think so what makes you want to take apart your microwave you know what I mean you need to phone the police on that lad that's amazing what you're saying there actually and I'm going to absolutely butcher this but um, Adam Schroeder who works in Glasgow as well you probably met him a couple of times he explained his PhD was very much like it was designed on purpose to be within industry um, and he really liked that like approach yep. to it. Like the whole point of the PhD was you did it with an industry partner and you might end up with something at the end of it in terms of like some work with that company. But if not, you've you've got the exposure to industry, the exposure to academia, the exposure to research, and then you can probably make a better choice of what you want to do yep. and what you liked out of all those. And which I quite like so I didn't even know that was an an option. So I think there's still probably a this, you'll probably be able to correct me as well, but there's still probably a perception of academia being like a like an old boys club. Like if you've been there long enough, for someone like you coming up in in 2018, what were the like? Was there a chance of getting up to those jobs, or was it always just going to be the next person in line? Like it seems like one of those kind of industries. Oh, I would I would agree with that. I think I think it it was very much like that, um, and it was clear and and you're sort of it's an uphill battle anyway. So kind of. I've been, I've been lucky sort of through my life you know what I mean you 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 have a good home you're okay and stuff but there's people I know who were way worse off they would have no chance and I struggled sometimes because it was like everybody at uni with me when I went to London went to a private school almost or like yeah. as soon as if I was teaching maybe not the people in my course because they came from kind of all over 
But if you were talking to undergrads, a lot of them who were at Imperial, like they'd went to private schools, had like home tutoring all the way through and sort of uh, just a lot kind of more material advantage. And it was just yeah. like that set them up so much because they just, they've already done so much ahead of time and then that just filters through and it keeps going. So there was an element, I think, of an old boys club and it's it's not to say it, it, it's impossible. I just I just felt, yeah, this is going to be really hard to break into, um, especially in certain fields and, for example, physics and at certain universities. So if you wanted to like be a lecturer at Oxford, Oxford, Imperial, Cambridge or something. Uh, it's going to be super hard, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's just it's kudos to the people who do it. I think it's it's great that people make a living from that. And it's important we have scientists. It was just not the lifestyle I wanted, I think, trying to break down that, that kind of set of barriers, if you like. Yeah, no, fair enough. And last thing on London, um, you mentioned teaching there. How was, uh, how was the accent? Oh, man, it was funny. Yeah, uh, so... <laughs> So obviously, you know, I'm very obviously from Glasgow, right? Um, and this is my accent toned down. And it was just, it was funny as well because we actually rented a flat technically in Kensington. It was like at the border of Kensington and Shepherd's Bush. I don't know if you know yeah. a bit of London. Well, just beside the Westfield Shopping Centre. And it was so funny because when we were moving in, everybody was looking at me and Hayley, my wife. Although to be fair, her accent's not as strong as mine. Mine was, mine was really strong. They were just looking at me like, is that guy is that guy burgling that house or is he moving in? It's like just because of the accent. Uh, so no, it was funny and I got I got slagged quite a bit by my my classmates, but but no, it was it was fine eventually. People get used to it. But yeah, it's it quite a brash accent, so it, was, it stuck out like a sore thumb in Kensington and Chelsea, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that image. Um, <laughs> And then, so you moved back up the roads, like you said, uh, for the, kind of, the reasons you mentioned. So, um, rather than getting a job in industry where you can ease yourself in, I don't, I don't think you did that by the looks of it. No. So you you joined uh, Streamba, who who were a startup, they might even still be a startup, as the head of data science and machine learning. So you moved from kind of academia to industry, um, and you moved straight into like a fairly kind of meaty role. How did it come about, first of all, and? Did you know by the end of the PhD that kind of the physics skills you had and the mathematics skills you had would make sense in a data science role? Yeah, so the way it worked was kind of I actually moved I actually moved back sort of during the tail end of my PhD. I still had a bit to go. <laughs> but I was like <laughs> I was like, I'm just gonna we're just gonna move home and sort of start building our life sort of thing. So I was actually actually still had a year and a bit to go of the PhD. So I was still doing research as well as working in that role, which I would never recommend to anyone ever. Oh um, yeah, I did see there was crossover on your like. Yeah, there was there was, there was a hefty crossover, um, which really destroyed my sanity and my weekends for for a year or, or more. Um, but how it came about was yeah, basically whilst I was in London and doing the research side of it and recognizing I didn't want that kind of career path, I just started. I started really researching quite heavily where where are my skills useful and obviously data science came up and I was like this makes sense as a place I could apply my skills but it, it also just ticked a lot of boxes for me like I like the generality of it so the idea is if you if you're good with data in any sense right it doesn't have to be machine learning it could be an analyst a BI developer if you're good with data you're going to be applicable in every industry for the next however many years right 
So I really like that because I was like, if you get if you get a good set of knowledge or kind of experiences in one area, you could easily switch but still apply your skills. So I quite like that. Um, and then and then I thought, well, there's a lot of maths and stuff here that I'm kind of I'm used to in the coding and things. So I just basically started teaching myself, putting stuff up on my GitHub, sort of forking repositories, tweaking algorithms, playing with data sets. Um, I never did Kaggle actually, but I know people do that as well, sort of the put up Kaggle uh, solutions. Did that, came back to Glasgow and basically Googled which companies <laughs> need data science. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I found I found Streamba. They were advertising. They weren't actually advertising for a data position, but they they sort of they had on their their website all their stuff about artificial intelligence and machine learning and this cool solution they were building. So I just emailed the guy. I was like, here's my CV. I've been teaching myself data science and stuff. I reckon I'm pretty smart. I'm a fast learner. Shall we talk and you can maybe use me? I like the look of your company. And I actually turned up to Streamba. So their, their offices are in Spears Wharf in Glasgow, which is a kind of really lovely bit to have an office. So I, I turned up. Yeah. Uh, and Stephen Calder is the head of the company. He's a great guy. He just he didn't he didn't remember he'd booked like my interview. He was like, "Who are you?" I was like, "Oh, I'm Andy." <laughs> I emailed like about talking about data. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I totally forgot. Today he came in. We had like an hour chat, and he was just talking through kind of the vision for the company and their solution. And I was just piping with loads of questions and ideas and like if you thought of this, um, and then yeah, from that you kind of we had a few conversations, and he was like, "Do you want to basically head up the?" the data science side for the company, um, which make, it, it's quite a good title, Head of Data Science and Machine Learning, but the department <laughs> was me. So it wasn't, I wasn't head of much <laughs> for a long time, but but it was good to kind of, uh, it was good to be given that trust to kind of set, I tried setting some of the vision for the machine learning applications and stuff for the company. So it was good. But yes, that's how it occurred. It was basically me chanting my arm and brass necking it. I like that though. That's the best yeah. way to do it when you're first moving into something for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, how was it moving kind of from that research world into like what you were doing had an effect on a, on a company? So was it quite, did you enjoy that because you'd done some of it already? Um, and was it a bit different because you maybe had more hats to wear than you had previously? Yeah, it was definitely, definitely different. Um, but I did enjoy it. So some of the stuff that was challenging was kind of, I suppose the stuff around when you actually get involved in projects that are being managed properly, <laughs> whereas in a, yeah. a PhD or a research world, there's no real need for, there's no such thing really as project management. It's just like you just go do stuff and then if it's interesting, write it up. And you're kind of, you're, you work alone often and you're kind of, you're siloed and you do your own thing. This was obviously totally different because you're now in a team of people delivering to deadlines and you're all relying on each other. So, I couldn't just sort of go, oh, sorry, guys, I dropped the ball. I'll, I'll get back to it next week. Cause they're like, no, we're delivering for a client this week. So I think that was a big challenge uh, for me. Um, but again, I kind of like that way of working. I like that structure. Academia was a, becoming a bit amorphous for me. I like, it's just a blank canvas, go do something. I find that yeah. quite hard, uh, an environment to work in. So actually having that structure sort of helped. And then I just loved the fact that we were building real stuff and getting stuff like pulled together. I think that was when I realized I'd made the right choice was when you actually, you know, you submit a bit of code or you contribute to something and they go, right, that's in the solution now. We're going to go pitch that to a client next week and that's the bit you built. That was like super exciting for me. So I think I got hooked then into the whole idea of like productionizing stuff and 
generating value and creating solutions and products rather than just doing analysis, which is kind yeah. of something that's been a it's been a strong theme for me since. Is really how do you how do you take that idea and actually build it? Don't just don't just kind of do a nice analysis, produce a chart or something, which is still very useful. But how do you actually create a solution that's engineered and built in? Um, and I think that came from the fact that the the rest of the company were all engineers by background. So it was like me and 12 software engineers. So I had to heavily <laughs> kind of incorporate myself into their way of working. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely challenging at times, but I learned a lot. And like you said, wearing many hats, I had to design a lot of things like, here's our process for doing data science or here's here's the sort of the architecture for how a machine learning solution happens. And obviously I didn't have any training in that. I had to kind of do it on the hoof. But I think that's best sometimes as a training. It's just, you just have to do it. Yeah. This might actually, this may be a hard question to answer given that it was just how you learned at Streambus. So you might not know any different. Um, but with a, with a guy in the podcast this week, and actually the one that just went, just went live, um, where they both are software engineers by trade and they've moved into this kind of data world. And they said one of their biggest frustrations was when, as a software engineer, there's so many things already in place for getting things into production. So getting your code to a standard and a level that it will go into production and you know how it's going to go into production as well. Um, They've learned very quickly in the data world that it's still quite immature in that way. Um, Do you think you were helped really by working with 12 engineers that you almost kind of probably have a similar view to those two guys? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Um, yeah, and that kind of, and it was that that environment as well about, we, they sort of, the Streamba had one product they were kind of pushing, this, this one kind of master product, if you like. So everything we were doing was to add to that product and give it functionality and make it cooler. So it was just that idea of, yeah, you're working in a software engineering process, you're committing your code, you're version controlling, you're now deploying and then as well, seeing things, seeing that if things failed, it was it was kind of not a just oh, shrug it off sort of thing. You're like, no, this has failed. A client is using this. <laughs> you, this can't just fail because you, you can't be bothered coding it properly. You have to kind of think about these cases. Um, so I think, I think that definitely helped. Um, it would be interesting how my mindset would have changed if, for example, if I'd maybe started in a a sort of quite different place. So if I'd started in somewhere with a really mature data team and I was a bit more, I wasn't sort of relied on to to build in so much of a sense so quickly, it would yeah. be interesting how I would have turned out, I think. But um, I really like the fact I think like that because I think it's a bit of an advantage or it's kind of, it's, it's a good thing to focus on because like you said, it is immature. So it's good if you've had experience of doing that and kind of your, and a, something I really push in my work now is like let's let's get this productionized and working and sort of really robust which i think is good as a sort of skill yeah, I think so. yeah yeah i think so one of the ones we did with um leanne fitzpatrick who now works in austin she told me a funny story that she did a data science round table you know like when you get all the data science leaders together and someone chairs it and they said uh put your hand up if you use version control in your data teams and like two people put their hand up her and one other and then they did the same thing in Austin and uh, she decided to ask the question because she was just intrigued and everyone put their hand up in Austin and they were almost kind of like yeah obviously really um, yeah so wow. it's just getting, it's just like there's different levels or different like stages of the process I think it depends where you've been and yeah. who you've worked with um, but I think it probably and this is me just talking out my arse a little bit but it's probably because <laughs> some data science teams have just 
cropped up, right? Like companies are like, I really want a data scientist. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. So, so maybe the processes aren't as good as they were because you can't when you're hiring a software engineer, they're, you're not normally the first one. Um, yeah. And if yeah. and if you are, you've probably been a software engineer somewhere else. Um, yeah. No. No. I think you're totally right. I'm actually pretty shocked at that version control sort of sample. Um, I mean, it'll be a hundred percent true, but it's on the podcast. I'll go back and listen. It was very. No, I, actually, there was I, not many. Yeah. No. I. I think. I think I have heard that one. Uh, Willian. It was a. Really, it was a really good one. But yeah, that's really strange that it's so low and then it's so high yeah. over in America. Yeah. I think. I think there is a there is a level of there was definitely a level of immaturity in this front when I started. So, I think I think you're totally right that if you're the first one there, and you're kind of just expected to get results, you you won't build a process really. <laughs> you're just kind of yeah. you'll you'll run at it and do what you can. Um, there was also the fact that it just hadn't been worked out in the community. So I remember starting and just like trying to Google, like, how does this work? Do you know what I mean? Whereas you would get so much stuff for software development. You know, there's like, there's the Agile Manifesto, there's Scrum certifications, there's all sorts of stuff for software development. There was nothing really about what's your data science development process or even thinking about data science as a development process. Do you know what I mean? So I think the term science is a bit unfortunate because it sort of... It might make some people think they're not engineers when really they have to be if they want to deliver value, in my opinion, or at least some some element of your team or your business has to be responsible for that. You can't just sort of I don't think the the sort of the old paradigm maybe of data scientist builds a cool model, shifts it over to software engineering to rebuild. I just don't think that works. I don't think yeah. it's ever worked. I think now you're at this point where people are getting towards that appreciation that actually you should build it and own it, but there's nothing wrong with having a blended team that together can do that. So you might have yeah. some people in the team who are like, they're really like algorithms, the science part of data science, right? But you should have in that team the capability of sort of moving that to the engineering space. I don't think you should punt it over the fence and then it becomes a software engineering process problem. You should have a process that just ticks along and that way you can deliver value scalably. Yeah, no, it's a good point. You mentioned the kind of uh, like when you first started out, just kind of working it out a little bit. That's why um, that was why we actually started Bankabel. When I say we, um, Eric started because he was doing an accelerator down in Manchester, and he was like, "I wonder if there's just other data scientists who I could like chat to." Um, and he started. He started as like, "Could we just chat to?" Them? And it ended, I mean, the first one had about eighty people at it, and ended up being kind of what it is now, but a bit rougher around the edges, if that's possible. Um, <laughs> Well, that's why he, uh, that's why he started it. And then one of the talks we had was a while ago now, actually. But um, so Tanya Allard, she works for Microsoft um, down in Manchester as well. But she does a few talks on um, I can think she calls it like data ops. Um, so instead of like DevOps, but having a really similar DevOps style approach. And that was most of the podcast I did this week. It's not out yet, but they come from a DevOps background and looking at that kind of way of working. But as a data scientist, yeah. seems like the right way to go. But I mean, again, it is quite immature. So I'm sure we'll change our mind on that. But it seems like the way to try and do it. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I've, I've heard it phrased as ML ops as well. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I was actually, we actually spoke at an event last week uh, run by Databricks. And that was an ML ops virtual summit. And we were talking about our way of working and that process and stuff. So I think it's, this is definitely the way to go. Like, I think it's just the ops piece has been missing. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've all been yeah. super excited about 
ML and data science, but it's really the engineering piece where it becomes valuable. Um, and it's like big companies like Google and Facebook and stuff that really popularized a lot of data science and machine learning stuff. They weren't sort of doing it in the back of an envelope. You know what I mean? Like um, <laughs> sort of mad scientist in the corner. It wasn't like that at all. They they have had ML ops from the start, I think. It's just yeah. it was more... It was more we're doing software engineering, but there's a bit of machine learning in it. And that's kind of, it doesn't have to be like that, but there has to be this blended approach of ML ops or data ops. There has to be something around that, I think. Because um, yeah. when you get it working, that's, it's brilliant. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and then obviously it went from Streamba as a startup. And like you said, with like, I don't know, less than 20 people by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, and then you went to, uh, I think it was 2018 time, roughly, you um, yeah. went to Agreco. Um, I always take for granted that everyone knows who Agreco are, just because I've been in the technology recruitment world in Scotland for so long. But Agreco <laughs> are a, a, a massive global player in the in the energy market, so it's a pretty big company to move to. But I, I suppose just anyone who doesn't know Agreco, I mean, why do they need someone like you? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. So... Someone in my team, uh, he always says, Agreco is the biggest company no one's ever heard of. Because <laughs> he says, like, <laughs> whenever he tells his family or anyone he knows, oh, I work for Agreco, they're like, who? And then if you see in the sort of the city centre of Glasgow or Edinburgh or something, you could point out one of their generators. People go, oh, I've seen oh, that easy. before. Yeah, yeah, all the time. So, yeah, so for everybody kind of listening, Agreco are a provider of what we call modular and temporary power solutions temperature control and energy services. So what that basically means is if you need to hire power for, could be anything like an event. So we did um, the Rugby World Cup. We were going to do the Tokyo Olympics, but that's obviously been postponed. But we'll do kind of the temporary power for that. So everything that runs basically the stadia, the lights, all of the tents, everything, um, even the Athletes Village and stuff, we will provide the, the power for that. Um, but it will also be really large-scale things. Like we could provide utility power for entire islands or bits of a country. <laughs> We've sort of done that for years by by shifting a lot of power there uh, temporarily. And that, that happens in the form of these these big boxes. It's essentially everything from a shipping container size down to a couple of meters sort of size. Um, and inside is a diesel or a gas or whatever the fuel is type generator. Uh, and we'll, we'll hire that out in a rental model. And we do the same for chillers, dehumidifiers. And then the energy services piece is all the surrounding ancillaries around that. So sort of transformers, um, other equipment that you need with that, as well as things like we'll take refueling responsibility for the assets or we'll provide you with fuel tanks, that sort of stuff. So the reason that Agreco really needs data in general and then moving into data science is our products are complex. So the generators themselves are really complex pieces of kit. Like I never appreciated how complicated a diesel generator was till I joined the Greco and we got a lot of good introductory and sort of wider documentation about them. And you're like, there's so many bits in there and they can all fail. <laughs> they can all break and they can all cost lots of money. And the whole asset itself is pretty expensive, right? So there's, there's that element to it. So anything you can do with data to help maintain that asset so that its lifetime is extended so you get better value for us owning the asset. Anything you can do to kind of make it run more efficiently 
um, that's good as well because that feeds into that that uh, extending lifetime idea. And anything you can do with the operations around maintaining that asset will save money. So we have to do a lot of maintenance on them, a lot of checking, a lot of swapping out parts. If you can bring data to that problem and really optimize that, you'll, you'll save a lot of money as well. Um, and then more generally, there's there's the bigger questions for any business. So there's like there's obviously sales and marketing, right? Um, so how do you identify new opportunities? How do you leverage the opportunities that are in your pipeline? How do you how do you sort of use a limited resource in terms of your your salespeople and point them to the the biggest fish or the more the, the more likely ones to convert, etc. So all of those kind of classic problems that fit in any business, and then more widely. Because we are a rental fleet, the operations challenge around that, which I kind of touched on, is but kind of more widely, is massive. So how do you optimize your supply chain? How do you put things in the right place at the right time? How do you make sure you don't have in your massive fleet assets that are just sitting in a, a depot somewhere not being used? So how do you up that utilization? So basically, there's those kind of three strands where there's the assets sales and marketing and then operations really where where we do stuff with data and then stuff with data science yeah okay. no yeah, yeah I, re- I can't remember if i talked to you about it or if it was someone else on the team but i'm sure there, there was stuff a while ago where like obviously you said you can power whole countries so um or parts of countries so uh, just as a basic problem like looking at the maintenance element of it are you trying to like predict if there's going to be outages and faults before you have to send an engineer? Because obviously it might be probably quite costly to send engineers all over the all over the globe. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's that's one of the biggest things I work on actually is our predictive maintenance programs. So and we've been super successful with that. So we've actually got more than ten machine learning algorithms deployed running every day. And they look at signals from from our assets. So a lot of our assets have telemetry units on board. So it's basically um, modems connected to the controllers, and they're monitoring all the signals. So it's things like the voltage, the pressure, the temperature, all these things inside the generator. They send that back to our data lake. So we've got this central place for data on the cloud. And then we'll run machine learning models on that to basically look for anomalies and then predict the likelihood of a certain piece failing. And we'll then send an alarm out to the business. That will then be acted upon, and they'll go send a technician out to replace the piece before it becomes a bigger issue. And that's that's been a hugely kind of successful and valuable thing for us, definitely over the past eighteen months, but over the last year as well. It's kind of we've saved a lot of money from doing that, um, yeah. and that's that's leveraging both both a data science kind of viewpoint, but also we leverage the expertise in the business quite a lot. So we always work with people in the business who really know their stuff so as you can imagine at a place like Agreco there's engineering experts ops experts there's just people who know what they're doing so we'll always collaborate with them on any project so we just we won't just sit there and sort of have our best stab at analyzing the data and go that's weird they actually come with us on the project and say right that signal doing that probably means this but can you make an algorithm that would pick that up and understand that? And we would work with them to do that. Uh, really so yeah, good. that predictive maintenance aspect's actually been one of our most kind of successful work streams, I would say. Nice. And it's one of those things, and I talk about this quite a lot in the podcast, but like, it's, probably, it's not going to like be in the front page of the papers, but like, that's what, that's what like most data science roles are all about is like trying to get some value from the data they already have or they could have. 
and either save the business money, make the business money, or uh, find out something totally new that nobody ever knew before, kind of thing. Opposed to all the really like crazy futuristic stuff that you see all the time. No, exactly. I think it's I think it's absolutely spot on, and I'm I'm a big kind of advocate of that. I think actually was it was it Scott ML I spoke at last year. We were talking about yeah. value driven analytics and stuff. Such a big thing for me that. I don't really care if it's super sophisticated, but you see if we can build something that generates that value and it was ours, then we've done our job. Like, that's it, full stop. And sometimes it is a really simple model. Sometimes it's not even a model. <laughs> sometimes, the best, <laughs> no, sometimes the best thing I can do is, like, le- when I'm leading the data science team is actually speak with a stakeholder in the business and say, this isn't a data science problem. This is a... BI problem or this is another type of problem and that's still useful because they they then sort of recognize all right we're not going to spend lots of development time building something that's not going to work which happens all the time you know there was that statistic years ago I don't know if it's still true but they said something like 90% of all data science projects fail and I think yeah. a lot of that with people yeah just thinking yeah you can do data science for that and trying really hard to build a fancy model when really either very simple would work or you should say no so yeah. yeah that whole value driven approach is something I'm really passionate about yeah no I think I was going to say that to you so there's a couple of things that I've seen um, well, just for speaking to you but also um, some of the posts on LinkedIn and stuff but like there's that kind of hype element of AI which is kind of I feel like it's slowly going away but I think you posted something on LinkedIn about it was an article about kind of using AI in COVID and kind of the like um, the perils of, of just kind of trusting the, the AI or something like that. And, and you were kind of saying that like, yeah, that's the simplicity, that's the value-driven element of it. Like you need to be careful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I kind of, I think, I think it may have been, yeah, I wrote this kind of, <laughs> wrote this kind of long rant about, <laughs> about <laughs> exactly that. It was sort of, it was a bit about hubris and has been a bit more modest. So there was just so much stuff popping up when COVID started hitting and it became obviously really bad and places were talking about going into lockdown, especially in Europe. Just so much started popping up about, I'm a data scientist and I forecast how many cases are going to happen or I've built this model that tells us how this intervention is going to change things. And you just read some of them and I'm not a biologist by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like it didn't take much Googling around to go, that is way too simple. And that is quite dangerous, actually putting that out and saying, like, I saw one that was horrendous where it was it was um it was the number of cases or deaths in the Financial Times and basically someone had circled everything in the bottom right hand corner and circled everything in the top left hand corner and basically said, Look, all the all the good countries in terms of number of cases are wearing masks as a rule, and these ones aren't. And it was like there was no, there was no trail of evidence for that. How have you sort of classified them as masks or not masks? How can you say that's not to do with anything else? Um, but yeah. it was one of those things where, because a, a data scientist or some data scientists were commenting on it, it just it just lends an air of credibility to it, which I think could be dangerous. So yeah, I wrote that kind of post, just basically saying you need to be a bit humble. You need to work with experts. That's just true across the board. I think like. You can be an expert in data, but you're not going to be the expert in your domain. You just, yeah. you just probably, that's probably quite rare. I mean, I imagine it happens, uh, but you probably had to have had training in that first. So if yeah. you're an epidemiologist who became a data scientist, I'd probably trust your models. I'm not going to trust my <laughs> models. Like, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. No, that's hard on. for me to say because I was trained as a physicist where we were told we could solve any problem. But I think, uh, 
I think it's good to be humble and sort of say, nah, you need to trust the experts in this and work with them. And that's the only way you can generate value and not make the simple mistakes. I think um, my favorite thing to come out of COVID and data science is the, well, most of the people that I follow on on my kind of like work Twitter is, is data scientists. Um, and they've all just been like laughing at the, the, the absolute nick of the graphs that like the BBC or the Financial Times, like they're like oh, yeah. bar charts that don't make sense. Like the axis don't make sense. Like the, the, <laughs> the scale's completely wrong. And they're publishing these out saying like, this is the data you need to follow or whatever. And it's like, you don't even have the graphs done right. <laughs> oh, I know. And like there's ones without axes and stuff. I know we were watching the, uh, the wife and I were watching um, one of the updates the other day, and now now my anger's infected her. So she's she's shouting at the telegram, that x-axis isn't formatted correctly. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> and it's not scaled appropriately. And I'm like, oh no, I've created a monster. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of uh, it's definitely it's definitely that case where people are just it's almost too easy to do an analysis now. Yeah. Um, but it's hard because you want to democratize it at the same time and you want that to be open, but that has to come with humility, I think. I don't think people can just assume that they download the data set and they're the only person who knows how to fit a straight line and that that must be right. Do you know what I mean? They, they, there just has to be a bit of to and fro there and a bit of kind of a bit of humility, I think, which I think was yeah. missing, at least in my LinkedIn feed. Could be who I was yeah, following. I think it's just LinkedIn, mate. Um, <laughs> I'm getting off that a little bit. So going back to Greco, um, as a big company um, tech team, pretty much in Scotland, how is it kind of how is it kind of managing that team now as the analytics team lead? And, and have you kind of picked up any any tips or or any like just little bits that you've learned over the last year and a half or so um, for kind of managing really smart people? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so there's about six of us now. I say about because basically I'm about to take on a new start and to data lab MSC students as well through the summer. So yeah. we're about to grow a little bit again and then shrink a bit. Um, so yeah, it's kind of it's been a, it's been around five six people I've been managing, and basically I think the 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 good thing the good thing for us is that we weren't a sort of greenfield project. So I think we've benefited a lot from that in the sense that there was a really strong BI team at Agreco for years before um, my boss, Elizabeth Hollinger, and then me turned up. Um, yeah. So there was a really good, strong appreciation of like what BI was and what data was and why it was useful. And I think that comes as well with the fact Agreco is an engineering company. So there's, it just filters through, I think, the appreciation of technology and what it can do. So it, so it wasn't completely greenfield. And then, based on uh, my boss's work, she's kind of built in these good processes for us getting pipelines of work in. So what that's meant is it's really clear what's coming down the line, and that just helps you as a manager sort of say, here's the resource we're going to need, and that's going to be required for this. And then what we do is we, I split out the team into sort of smaller squads, if you like, but it's really pairs. So it's a data scientist and then a senior data scientist will work on any given project. And I think that works really well. So it's they'll both be the technical contributors in the project, and I'll maybe pitch in if something specific comes up. But it means as a kind of they've got the focus. The data scientists can focus on delivering technical work, but the senior can kind of basically take some of my technical management responsibilities, if you like. They can sort of curate, quality assess the work. They can assign the data scientist and themselves tasks, and I'll just sort of check in as needed. 
And I yeah. think that that's worked super well for us. That's meant our sort of our pace of delivery and our quality of delivery is really good because we've just got all these levels where we check things. So it's like the data scientist obviously is working to check their own work, but they then coordinate with the senior data scientist and then that'll escalate up to me. And then there's there's just a lot of processes we've designed about how we work with the business. So we do things like a monthly retrospective in every project where we'll get quite senior stakeholders in the business to sit down with us and we'll present where we're at. We'll give really strong updates on where we are tracking against sort of project timelines and things. And 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 we're just really clear on, I think we're all really clear on what finished means as well. So I always consider a project as it's not finished unless we've deployed an end-to-end automated solution. So it's kind of, it's, it's good that we work to that. I think it's, there's not many places I know where there's that kind of appreciation of, oh, yeah, I'm building an end solution, like I said at the beginning, that yeah. I think is a, a big thing for us. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of some things that have worked. So that kind of idea of small teams that hold themselves to account within your team. Um, like and then and then, uh, and then having those processes in place is so important so that everybody can just kind of, they've got train tracks they can run on. If they want to do something exciting or interesting, they can obviously diverge from that a little bit. But it's just clear that they're, they're on a project. Here's the steps you need to go through. And this is what delivery looks like. So they know the destination. All of them come together, I think, to really help us. And then we're just, I think the good thing as well is we're, we're just a fun team. We're kind of, we're a good team to sort of chat rubbish with and just sort of hang out <laughs> together, which I like. I really, really like that. Um, and that's true of the wider team. So not just my team, but the, the BI team and data engineering team. We're all part of a wider insights team at Greco. Um, yeah. and we all get on really well and I think that's so important that sort of team dynamic that ju- that just helps as well so when you've got a really tough deadline or a tough project you can just rely on each other which really helps yeah. as well no that's really good and then so it's the last thing on Agreco and we'll do a couple more bits on, on kind of some of the things you do outside of work as well but um, what if any challenges has there been with this kind of enforced work from home uh, has it been quite seamless for you the team and the business I suppose yeah so I think I'll go. I'll go in reverse order from the biggest beast down. So for the business, I think just like for any business, it's obviously been a challenge. Um, but the big thing that I noticed was kind of the operational element of it, because we we have people on site twenty four seven in some cases, not all yeah. cases, but like those big projects I mentioned, the utility scale ones, they'll often be manned or crewed by people all the time, and I think it's been really hard for them because I think it's been a delay getting them to sites, but also taking them back from sites and things. And I can imagine that being really difficult. So that's not been something that's affected us, obviously, in IT and stuff. I think for us, we're really lucky. But there is such a huge operational out there in the field element for a company like Agreco. I think that's, yeah. been, that's been a big challenge for people in the business. Um, it's been quite amazing how, how quickly they adapted to that and put in new, new ways of working and sort of working around that. I was quite impressed with that. In, t- in terms of our wider IT function, it was interesting because I think I think we were going to just um, we were talking about doing a practice day of everyone working from home, and then the announcement came saying, "No, you have to you have to actually work from home." <laughs> like oh, Boris did exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, and it was like it was weird the timing because I think it was the same day or something. So it was like we'd had the practice day, and then Boris Johnson was on in the evening going, "Right, everybody, you're working from home." <laughs> So uh, it was on the Tuesday because we went into work on the on the Tuesday or the Monday with a new star and uh, we'd kind of got all the management together and said, right, I think we should do a practice day tomorrow because 
it's probably going to happen. So it's the yeah. practice day, see if Microsoft Teams works, see if people have got the right machine, see if their Wi-Fi is any good. And then like that night, it was like, yeah, you're going to work from home. And uh, <laughs> I actually remember it, it was it was a Monday because we were supposed to play football that night and the company who we play football with said they were still open. And we kind of said, well, do you know that like, not, like <laughs> shouldn't we, we've, just, well, we've just been told to work from home and they were like, yeah, until we get told to close, we're just going to keep cracking on. So yeah, it was on the Monday because we were supposed. To, we, we just never yeah. went back on the Tuesday, and obviously never went back since. Yeah, um, no, it was the same same thing. So I think it was a bit of a, a bit of a. We just had to make the leap. But the the IT sort of function levels, there's there's been really good support, I think. So, and everything's worked quite smoothly. Been super impressed. Good. Yeah. So we we run Teams as well and stuff, and that's just been, just been great. I think if you have the odd issue, but it often turns out it's my Wi-Fi. It's not. It's not actually anything. Wow, my Wi-Fi is terrible. I know mine. Is, mine is so bad. Um, and and we wanted someone to come and upgrade us to to fiber, but obviously they stopped sending out the technicians and the engineers. Yeah. So it's kind of I think someone came and he's done half the job and he's got like the wire sitting out there, but it's, he's just left it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just kind of like, should that be left? I don't know. So if we can get my wife my Wi-Fi upgraded, that would help. But no, kind of I think Teams and just the technology platforms we have now make working from home a possibility. I was saying mm. I was saying to Haley, my wife, the other day. I was like, "Can you imagine? Can you imagine if this had happened in the eighties or something? You know what I mean? Oh. Or the or the nineties? Like, what what would you do? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, it would be horrendous. Um, yeah, um, but then at the level of my team, I think we've we've taken to it relatively well. I think we're a few quite different people, so some of us I think quite like that social interaction in the office and really kind of really miss that. I I've like we were chatting before the podcast, sort of, I like I like having those blocks of time that I can sometimes get now, where I just I just focus and get some code sort of done. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag. The one thing I was worried about was people overworking. So I don't think anyone's mm. really been doing that, but I'm constantly on at the team. They're probably getting really annoyed at me by now, <laughs> but I keep getting on to them like, please don't overwork. Like, take breaks, go do your daily exercise. It's so easy for you to just sit at the computer and day to turn into night, um, and yeah. I'm just like I, I was kind of worried about that for a bit. I think I think I'm now a bit more confident that they're, they're not doing that. But I was I was worried about that because it's so easy to do. I've done it myself. I think when you it, work from home. it would be yeah. easy, yeah, it'd be easy early on because it was so new yeah. and you were just like you want to prove that you're working or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think now we're ten weeks in. Like, if anyone was still doing crazy hours, like they'd burn themselves out. So no, and that's what I was worried about. Naturally, yeah. no, and that's what I was worried about. I was like, I know you guys are good. You're really committed and stuff. You don't need to prove anything. <laughs> Just like stop, yeah. stop at five or half four or whenever you normally finish. Just like, and because it's it's hard and it's it's really a different. It's different for some people. I've got quite a good office setup, but I know some people are like don't have the same sort of setup and things as well and we're doing what we can to to mitigate that and make that as smooth as possible like i think i saw yeah. your post did you not put up a post on linkedin <laughs> in, uh, yeah, right, you, you're at your, yeah you're at your, your kitchen table or something i'm at my, yeah, my dining room table which is also our spare room and also where my wife keeps all of her bacon stuff and then we also <laughs> we, we sit next to each other all day because it's the only well i mean if i'm on calls and stuff like our do podcast you'll move into somewhere else but it's the kind of comfiest place for us both to sit so i just find it funny i guess like 
at the start of all this, the thing that I kept seeing was like people had these pristine rooms in their house with these screens and like these like wireless, and you couldn't see a wire in sight. Like all the wires were perfectly yeah. tucked behind. Where's I mean, the wires? I, I've got about I've got about seventy wires on the show right now from like five different <laughs> applications, and like that. I just I kind of wanted to post like a kind of almost like a reality picture. Like this is what some people are doing with. Yeah, it's um, like Instagram. And I'm, and I'm not bothered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not bothered by it as well because I know it's kind of a temporary setup, which is kind of fair enough because if I had a home yeah. office, I'd maybe make it a bit fancier. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was funny that like people just seem to be posting all of that stuff, um, whereas I know there's loads of folk. I mean, I've got a solution for when I, if um, Sam's on a call, I'll just go through to the kitchen and use like two boxes to make like a stand-up desk. And just like yeah. it's just like it's, it's so DIY, but like it just it just works. Yeah, if it works, um, if it works. Um, so yeah, so I'm kind of I'm okay. I've got I've got an IKEA standing desk that I bought ages ago, and I've I've got a relatively okay setup. Um, but I understand like for some members of the team it won't be like that. So it's just sort of checking yeah. in and then making sure everything's okay. Is there anything you can do to sort of help, basically? And it's a stressful time for everybody, right? It's, yeah. There's this quote going around, which I totally buy into that. Um, you're not, you're not work. Why is it you're not working from home? You're, you're trying to work from home during a global health crisis or whatever it is. There's yeah. sort of variations yeah, of that yeah, theme. Yeah. I think it's so important. They sort of remember. Uh, um, it's not the same thing. No, it's not. It's not like we've all made a choice and went. Do you know what? I actually quite like working from home. I'm going to do that full time. It was more. I, ne- I never seen my friends family. or family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, be, yeah, exactly. It's a good point. Uh, some people might make that choice, but um, but yeah, exactly. And it's kind of it's this thing where we've been forced to do this, not much notice, and and there's all this stuff in the news that's not it's not exactly positive, is it? So it's just not normal. And we should yeah, recognise exactly. that and just kind of give people a break. That's a great shout. And it's good from someone that's in that kind of position that you can do that as well. Mm. Last two points. The first one, we'll try and go quickly. And the second one, you can tell us a bit more about. So you're pretty active, like you just said, actually, speaking of the Databricks ML Ops. You spoke at our Scott ML event. You've actually got your own kind of technical event as well. Um, yeah. Is that just something you felt like you should do? Because you enjoy it, um, give some back to the kind of like local and, uh, and kind of bigger community of data science. Was that just kind of the, is that the main drivers behind it? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a it's kind of altruistic and non-altruistic reasons. So the altruistic reasons will start with paint me in a good light, and you can edit out the other ones. So so basically, um, yeah, I think giving back to the community is really important, and it's important when I think you're in. You're in either a position like mine or you've been lucky enough to have quite good experiences along the way. I think it's important to share here's what kind of worked, here's what didn't work, here's what didn't work. I think that that helps people a lot and that would have helped me. And it did help me when, because like I said, we couldn't find much on Google. But when you went to meetups and spoke to people who were doing this stuff and had tried things and it didn't work, it was really good to know you've came up against the same challenges and here's your workaround. And then you can just kind of replicate some of those those good ways of, of working. Um, yeah. It's also a great way to meet people. It's a great sort of, it's a good community I think we've got in, in the central belt, but kind of more widely in the UK. And there's lots of really exciting, cool stuff going on. So mm. I just like hearing about that. And I like, I like sharing cool stuff. The kind of, the non-altruistic reasons are more along the lines of I recognised it was kind of it's good for your career. It's sort of get your name out there and kind of just sort of share what you're doing. I think, um, and yeah. I think that's maybe sometimes forgotten about 
with people, especially maybe early in their career. And it is harder early in your career because you might not be invited to stuff or whatever, but there's so many opportunities now to go and share the cool stuff you're doing. And then you might find you actually enjoy giving a talk and then you'll be invited to more and things. So I would definitely yeah. encourage people to do that. I've learned a lot from doing it. So it's kind of, yeah, there was, there was kind of a set of different reasons. And I, I do I do really enjoy it, actually. I like... I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so I like, yeah. I, no, but I like, um, I do like, I do like sort of telling these stories about yeah. things that have worked, here's things that haven't worked. And just when people ask and they're interested, I think it's good because you just, everybody learns a lot more. And it's part of that that's really helping bring along the data science community here um, yeah. and the wider tech community. Like just that, that community actually meeting in a place or now virtually, <laughs> but at least I'm talking yeah. to each other, pinging ideas. I think that's so important because it'll be through that you get chance encounters, you'll meet people and you'll start businesses. And do you know what I mean? It's all these positive things, I think. So, yeah. yeah. No, so you're, you're bang on. I mean, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy doing the, I mean, ML series now started in Manchester and um, the Manchester one now, we get over 100 people every time. And that's uh, great. there's, there's probably a solid 10 to maybe maybe max 20, but maybe kind of 10 to 15 every time when the event finishes. And bear in mind, it's like nine, half nine at night. We kind of traipse along with the local pub and just keep chatting yeah. about stuff. Sometimes it's not data related. Sometimes it's just like a catch up with people you've not seen for a while. Um, but like, it's just really good to have those people and those connections. And it's helped me immensely just kind of getting to know people and, and being able to do stuff like this as well. I think it's worth remembering because you mentioned kind of you might not have the opportunity to do it. I think one of the big things that I kind of mean to talk about more, but a lot of people say to me like, "Oh, my my boss won't let me speak about what we're doing." Like you can speak about anything. Like you can speak about stuff that you're doing in your own time, something you've maybe done a wee bit of research on and you've not had a chance to flesh it out yet. Like you should take the opportunity if you can, even to do a five ten minute spot, and almost like it will spark something else. It doesn't have to be about what you're doing Monday to Friday. No, totally, absolutely. So, so that was one of the reasons we set up uh, ML Club um, yeah. a few years ago. So, was, I love this was, idea. It was something I really wanted to try and look into when we did the machine learning in Manchester. I was like, could we do a techie one? But I'm just not. I can't do a techie one. So, if I need someone like you, <laughs> sure, I need someone like sure, you to do it. I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could. You just. You just blag your way. That's that's what I do. Um, so, so um, yeah. So the idea was exactly that. Can we set up a really technical one and get people like we we never really agreed the format, um, and it's kind of it's it's mutated quite a lot over the years. I think um, so. It's quite a different beast. But we started out actually as we had this idea of shall we like create a competition? We'll get people involved, and then we'll split them into teams, and they have to build an end to end machine learning product. And that way, we're really focusing in on that engineering piece, the technical challenges, working in a team, and all that. Yeah. Um, so that that was that was kind of fun, and then it evolved into, like you said, people sort of sharing their research projects, and we had some phenomenal talks. Um, people who are like, "Yeah, I've just been pulling this together in my GitHub, and like it it looks at it looks at pictures of maps and works out really good places where you could you could build on land and stuff and you're like that's 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 an entire business that's amazing and that's you should know yeah. yeah i know and the, but you would see things like that or um one of the best ones was my mate finley mccray so he he's one of the co-organizers of ml club now he sort of he actually runs it mostly now he he built this um smart hoover bot we wanted to build and he like built this robot and it had tensorflow inception running on it and it would 
it would go around, bump into stuff, and then it would recognize what it's looking at. And it was like, it built that in a few weeks, just with kind of mucking about and putting stuff on Git. And he works in a bank. He would not normally, that wouldn't be something he would speak about as part of his job, right? But it was so cool yeah. and so great to share. So I think it's it's exactly like you say. It has to be, just talk about something that's interesting, something you've tried. Even just general stuff like issues you've been having, questions you've got about how this all works. Um, yeah, no, I like definitely. That. Yeah, it's definitely other topics than exactly what you're working on. Yeah, that was my idea for it when we first spoke about it. We can maybe chat about this later, but um, one of the things was like, could we do like a, a kind of project that you split into teams? And for example, in Manchester, there's loads of homelessness. So, like, could we do like a project which would look at how you could potentially fix that or something like that? Um, get everyone together, have a, a, a kind of hackathon. Kind of access, a, a, yeah. yeah, kind of access to public data. Get a little team together and make something kind of pretty rudimentary at the start, and it just kind of sparks something. Because remember, somebody once asked us that, man, came out, we, we want way more technical talks. And I remember speaking to someone in a kind of similar position to you, and they said, the last thing I want to do after eight hours of managing a team of data scientists is to come and look at a big screen of Python. Like, it's just not my idea. <laughs> oh, really? Right. <laughs> but, but, if, but if it was a, an event where that was the that was the basis of it, then that's fine. It was more the fact that oh, like, okay. you, don't, yeah. you don't want, like, a big screen and you get coming to a talk and you see, like, and Andy's GitHub on the big screen, and you're sitting at the back, and you're trying to work out what it says. Like you needed to be a smaller kind of like everyone's got their machine type event. And I was like, yeah, that, that, yeah. that's where the idea kind of came from. Um, yeah. It sounds kind of like data kind. Do you know about data kind? No, I've not heard of it. Okay, so look at them. So they're a, I think they're US based, but they're this charity, and they basically try and get data scientists to apply themselves to social problems. Uh, and sort of charity-based oh, problems. I actually have heard, I have heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, really, that is, it, it is a little bit like that. Any, any, event you, any event you can organize like that sounds great. And I think I think there is that aspect where you're right. You probably don't want to present super detailed technical stuff, but it is really good to... If you can build stuff in a team, that's great because that's, that's exactly what you're going to get asked to do in a job. So. Yeah. If you do that, and you can talk about it, if you don't have a job yet and you're trying to break into data science, you can say, "I went to the ML club in Glasgow and we came up with this idea, and here's the public code of it." And if you want to speak to Andy, who helps run it, then I'm sure he would give you a chat and tell you a bit about what I did. That's better than like almost anything you could put on a CV. Absolutely, no. That's that's what that's exactly what I say to people all the time. Is like get stuff on GitHub or somewhere, like just build things, yeah. and it kind of that's. Just the way you said that there, like if you can say, look, I did X or I did Y, that's automatically better uh, when you're in a hiring position than I went to a fancy uni. And I'm saying that having <laughs> went to a fancy uni, right? <laughs> but, but it's like, I just find that way more impressive. If somebody goes, look, I just built this solution or me and a few mates mucked around and we ended up building this dashboard. And you know what I mean? Because you're going you're gonna to automatically understand how to work in a team. You'll understand the typical challenges you face. You'll have had to do all the, the grunt work, like cleaning the data. You'll have had to, you know, kind of done all the nasty stuff, like build the hacky thing that grabs data from an API. You'll just have to have done a lot more. Um, yeah. So, yeah, totally. I totally. I, I think that really impressive. If somebody comes to me and says, I don't have any official training that you could call on, but look, I built this cool stuff. You can go to my GitHub and see it. I just automatically yeah. tick all the boxes for me. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And then the last thing I was going to cover off, and I left this to the last on purpose, you were named Data Scientist of the Year for 2019, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. 
how did uh, how did it come about? Like, what what was the kind of awards and and kind of what is, what does it mean? I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. What, what does it all mean? Yeah, it's a good other question. than you're other than you, you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to squeeze that in. Yep, good. I didn't yeah. pay you to say that. So basically, a year and a bit ago, I found this. I was basically trying to look for professional bodies for data scientists, and I was like. Yeah. What is there out there? So I knew I knew about things like the Royal Royal Statistical Society, and I was like, okay, maybe maybe that's good. And then I found this organization called the Data Science Foundation. I was like, what is this? Is this is this like just somebody's throwing up a web page, or is this legit? And then I looked into it, and there was quite a lot of big companies. I can't remember exactly, but uh, there was a few big companies in America and stuff, and in the UK who had actually said we are members or affiliates of this. So I was like, okay. So I joined that and then they had said at one point they were doing, they called it the International Data Science Awards and they were going to be announcing the awards at the AI Expo in Santa Clara. So I'd heard of the AI Expo and stuff. I think I'd been to one of them. I thought, that's a really good, it's a really good event. It'd be good to get an award at that. So I spoke to the boss and I was like, look, they've got these awards. What do you think? She was like, no, no, absolutely. Apply. Let's, let's apply. So we just pulled together an application. I spoke about kind of my background, where I'd grown up, where, what I'd studied, and then my work, and kind of really pulled out what I was saying earlier about the focus on engineering, creating value, a big part of working with stakeholders. I described like this challenging project I'd worked on that required pulling together quite a lot of different pieces in order to get a solution. It was super challenging. Yeah, so it was just kind of that. Is sort of you do this big application. I think the the boss had to write a testimonial or something. That goes in. You forget about it for a while, and then actually, I wanted to chance my arm and get a trip to Santa Clara. But we were actually and we were actually in London when it was on at another award ceremony. So the Lloyd's National Business Awards. So our wider team actually won the the DI Excellence Award for that. So so we're down in That's London awesome. winning this other award and that meant I couldn't get I could I found out the next day or the day after that that I'd won this this award in California and I was like did you have to do like a VC acceptance like a Andy can't be with us tonight we'll dial in London and like you're, Oscars, you're yeah. just absolutely reeking at that event no I don't <laughs> <laughs> no exactly um, exactly it was, we were having too good a time at the, the London event um, I think two days later when I'd heard I'd just about recovered um, so no, we never had to do never had to do anything like that. But they sent out the trophy. But it was funny because I actually I actually found out during a meeting. So we were at a wider meeting between it was the analytics team, so my team and the BI team yeah. and data engineering. So we we're kind of there was a wider wider team meeting. And uh, one of the guys in work, he's chapping at the door of the meeting, which is really unprecedented. You don't kind of do that, right? So he's chapping at the door whilst we're having this in depth conversation, and he's mouthing to me, "You've won, you've won." And he's a bit of a wind-up merchant, so I was like, "Ah, go away, piss off," sort of thing. And then, uh, and then somebody checked online on their phone. They went, "No, Andy, you won. <laughs> you won the award." And I was like, "Nah." And then we pulled it up, and I was kind of, yeah, it was a bit gobsmacked. But it's you now it was it was a good kind of bit of recognition. And I think I never kind of take it as an award for me. It's a bit corny to say it, but I do think it's testament to the cool stuff we're doing as a wider team. And I'd sort of said yeah. that when I got it. I was like. That's not just me, because I've not, I've not kind of came in and built all this. <laughs> I'm just a small piece yeah. that's it. So I think it was a good testament to everything we've done, and then winning that other award, the the Day Excellence Award, was was good for the wider team. And I think it's when you do that, it's 
it's built up quite a bit of belief in the team. They're kind of like, no, we are doing really cool stuff. And I just like it as well, because you're like, we're this IT team based in Glasgow, yet we're winning all these really cool awards. So it's, yeah, it's a really good time to do something right. Yeah. And just lastly, to wrap it up, because conscious of time, um, where is the best place to kind of find you in terms of kind of like social media or any, just, yeah, where, where would you find anything from Andy McMahon in data science? Uh, yeah, so I've got a Twitter, uh, at Electric Ouija. So Ouija, W-E-E-G-I-E. So for anybody who doesn't know that, that's someone from Glasgow, a Ouija. Um, <laughs> so at Electric Ouija. And I've also got, I've also got a, a kind of blog or a website, a WordPress site called electricwidget.com, but I've not added to it in ages. So what I often do is I'll write a post on LinkedIn and I'll just copy and paste it onto that. So so it's yeah. not much original stuff in there. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of on LinkedIn and stuff. Um, nice. I'm, yeah, that's kind of... We'll post it. We'll post it when I get it all out. We'll make sure it's all tagged in. Um, all right. Well, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, and hopefully we can catch up on an event soon. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much. Uh, that was a good laugh. Um, went went over time actually, um, and it's such so easy to talk to. Always enjoying chatting to him. He, he's a good guy. Loves what he does. Um, doing some really good work at Agreco. Always good to see them doing well. It's a bit of a cliche within our office, but um, they're kind of a real Scottish success story. Um, and a company that's kept their technology team kind of mostly in Scotland as well, which is really good to see. So yeah, thanks Andy for coming on. Thanks to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring and making it all possible. And thank you for listening. Um, we'll be back very soon. So please keep an eye out and hit subscribe.